Friday lunchtime lectures at the Open Data Institute. Hi everyone, uh, thanks for joining us today, this evening, oh, this afternoon, or maybe it's evening or morning, wherever you are, but thank you for being here today. Um, my name is Antonio Roberts, and I'm an artist and curator based in Birmingham, and also the curator of the Rules of Engagement exhibition that's um, online at the ODRA, Open Data Institute's website. So today we're going to be having a talk by one of the artists from the Rules of Engagement exhibition, uh, Nick Breeze, who's currently based in Chicago. Um, the way that things will progress today, I'll just do a very short introduction, contextualizing everything that's happening and the art, artwork. And then Nick will be talking for about um, 30 minutes and then we'll have questions at the end. For questions, I encourage you all, please do to um, type your questions in the chat as we go, as you go along. And I'll try my best to pick out those at the end when we do the question and answer. So yeah, please do um, put, put those in the chat. And as we might have saw earlier, please do make sure you have your microphones off and your cameras off for the duration of the uh, talk today. That'd be great, thank you. Um, so yeah, um, I just wanna say a few words first. So as I mentioned already, um, I curated the exhibition um, for Open Data Institute last year. And really I just wanna kind of introduce what the exhibition uh, was. Um, it features the artwork of three different artists, all of whom are kind of ethically engaged with technology in some way. So those artists are Everest Pipkin, whose talk hopefully you saw last week, uh, Nick Breeze, who's here today, and A.M. Dark, who is currently finishing off their work for the exhibition and will be premiering that very soon. I'm really excited about that. So um, just to introduce uh, the exhibition, I'll be reading the curatorial statement, which you can see on the culture.vodi.org website. So rules engagement. Um, it presents the work of three artists whose collective works make a case for ethical practices when working with data. Following numerous scandals involving data towards the end of the 2010s, the industry is now being forced to ask critical questions about its data collection and handling practices, and to consider embedding ethical practices at all stages. The old mo model of move fast and break things has brought with it accelerated innovation, but also an increased risk of data mishandling and misuse, leading to real-world implications to often already marginalized groups of people. And these three artists uh, presented are united in their critical approach to systems that have allowed unethical use of data. Through their work, through their work they ask important questions about data ethics and lived experience. Why might there be mistrust in current practices? Should data collection even be considered in the first place? What are the benefits and pitfalls of collecting data? How are biases encoded into data practices? Um, what do ethical models of innovation look like? And who are the people slash communities impacted by data misuse or uh, invisibility? Uh, by seeing people as more than just data points, the artists in rules of engagement encourage those with power to reimagine re how we engage with data. By doing so, we can ensure a data future where data and the people it affects are treated ethically. So yeah, if you want to see more of the uh, artworks, you can go to culture.vodi.org um, to experience all the works, including AMs who will, whose will be um, released very soon. And to just introduce Nick um, again briefly, I, I've known them now for well over 10 years and I've, seen, I've experienced their work in many different fashions in person and online. And I really just appreciate how much they 
are critically engaged with the technology. If you look back through their back catalog, they've challenged um, obsolescence, uh, enforced technological obsolescence. They've talked about data misuse. They've talked about privacy and security. And it's just embedded within their practice and everything that they do. So when curating this exhibition, they felt like a very natural choice of someone who um, experiences these things through their work and through their um, journey on the internet, but actively campaigns, um, I guess, against it to make people aware. I'd say they're very much an educator in what they do as well, um, formally and informally as well through their practice. So um, yeah, so I'm really happy that they agreed to be part of the exhibition, that they um, created an artwork, and really that they're here today. Uh, I believe it's like just turned 7 a.m. for them. So <laughs> I'm really grateful for, to have you here. So, um, okay, yeah, I, I think I will stop for now. But like I said, please have your cameras and microphones off and put any questions that you have in the chat and we'll come to them. But yeah, for now, I'm going to mute myself and hand over to Nick. So take it away, Nick. Well, thanks, Antonio, for the, for the intro and for inviting me. Thanks to um, everyone at, at ODI for caring about the same stuff that I care about uh, and supporting this sort of work. I'm going to screen share. Um, and also, so the, the work for... Uh, for the show is called How They Watch You, um, and that's the title of the piece, but also the URL, howthey.watch slash you. Um, but if you go to just the, that root URL, um, how they watch, which I'll paste in the chat, howthey.watch, um, there's a kind of intro statement to the piece. So I kind of want to start by reading that that intro statement, uh, just kind of going through it, setting it, setting the stage. Um, and then I'm going to talk a little bit about uh, my work, sort of how I how I got here um, to these issues and making this kind of uh, work. Um, and then hopefully, yeah, like Antonio mentioned, have some time for a Q&A afterwards uh, about this piece or any of the other ideas that I'll share with you all today. Um, all right, so this is um, sort of the intro statement to the, to the piece. It says, hello, um, zero D-E-B-1-E. Uh, if you've got a few minutes, I'd love to show you how they watch you. Who's they? In 1968, when the first two computers on the ARPANET, what would later become the internet, connected and exchanged messages, two of its inventors prophesized that life would be happier for the online individual because the people with whom one interacts most strongly will be selected more by commonality of interests and goals than by accidents of proximity. They were in the midst of producing a new kind of decentralized network for the purpose of computer resource sharing. There were few computers in those days and managing time and access was complicated. However, they quickly realized that this intergalactic computer network they were building was poised to become much more than just a research management tool. This would become humanity's new home, a global village. And as human discourse adapts to its new home, everything we do and think as human beings will be and is being shaped by new values. If it's fair to say that anything has changed everything, it's fair to say that about the internet. Um, but what are these new values? Who gets to dictate our new norms? Since the beginning, the internet's technical protocols have been collaboratively designed and transparently implemented in open standard organizations made up of member groups, large and small, from around the world. However, as the means by which we access the internet becomes increasingly centralized, the social protocols, the rules by which individuals interact and connect with one another, have become the exclusive province of those running a handful of platforms. 
Everything we do on the internet generates data. Every random thought we type into a search field, every location we visit with our GPS-enabled phone, every document we write, message we send, and even message we begin to write but decide not to send, all this becomes data. This data is your experience of the online world made manifest. This experience has become the free raw material for hidden commercial practices of extraction, prediction, and sales. Consciously or not, our new values are being shaped by the business logic of these platforms a new economic order, which has come to be known as surveillance capitalism. Ask any kid what Facebook is for, and they'll tell you Facebook is here to help you make friends. No, they're looking to figure out how to monetize people's relationships. If you don't know what the software you're using is for, then you're not using it, but being used by it. Reclaiming our agency online requires seeing the invisible in order to better understand how they watch you. Um, at that point, you would click on that link um, and a sort of interactive hypermedia essay begins the how they watch you piece, but I'm gonna switch tabs um, over to this tab. These are my, I've got some slides um, for the talk. I'm gonna paste a link to the slides in the chat if folks want to view the slides uh, on their end. Just gotta click this computer before it moves too quickly to click. Then um, you should see this little browser in browser situation and you can navigate the slides by clicking the arrow keys in the top left. Um, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to blow through these relatively quickly, um, but if you see any, anything in a particular slide that you want to learn more about, you can click the link in the little address bar and then I'll open up a new tab with more info on whatever the current slide happens to be. Um, so Leah, like Antonio mentioned, my name is Nick Breeze. Um, I'm an internet artist slash educator slash organizer, and I make work with, um, but also very much about the technology that's come to define the era that we find ourselves in, uh, which for me is the internet. Um, so when I say that I make work with the internet, um, I mean that this is the, the medium that I work in, computer hardware and computer code is how I make my work, but that work is also always oh, uh, about life in the in the internet age. Uh, and because computers and the internet um, are sort of metamedia, what Adele Goldberg and Alan Kay used to call metamedia, which is to say that uh, it exists of all the previously existing and not yet forms of, and not yet invented forms of media, uh, the work that I make comes in a lot of different forms. Um, maybe the most obvious of which is what we call like internet art or net art or web art, which is art that's meant to sort of exist within, within a web browser. Um, but also artware or software art, so sort of apps or software as, as an art medium. Uh, also video games and uh, virtual reality, uh, animated GIFs or GIFs or GIFs, uh, interactive installations, video art, uh, and uh, also real-time audio-video uh, performances. Uh, but like Antonio mentioned, I'm also uh, an educator uh, in, in the maybe more formal sense, a conventional sense. I'm a professor at the School of the Art Institute of Chicago and also the University of Chicago. But I also make a lot of online tutorials, uh, video tutorials, but also interactive tutorials um, and uh, also sort of web-based digital literacy tools, mostly focused uh, on, on, on artists and, and designers like this one called the 3JS Playground. 
Uh, and I'm also an organizer. I put together a lot of events, festivals, conferences, art shows around, around these themes. Uh, this is from a series called Data Rules Everything Around Me uh, that I co-organized with an art collective that I co-run called netizen.org. Um, I'll paste that actually in the chat, netizen.org. Um, this was a speaker series where we invited um, all sorts of um, artists, researchers, activists that are kind of working on radical projects in response to some of our most pressing digital uh, issues. Um, so this sort of work um, that I've been making, I've been doing for um, uh, over a decade uh, now, but I got into this when I was uh, in film school, when I was in college. Um, then I was really into the work of a lot of sort of avant-garde filmmakers and experimental filmmakers uh, like Stan Brakhage. This is a still from uh, one of Stan Brakhage's films. For folks who don't know Stan Brakhage, um, he would make films by uh, sort of, I mean, he had a lot of different techniques, but my favorite of his films were we take clear film leader and actually paint on the celluloid and, and scratch on the, on the celluloid directly and then kind of run that through a projector. Uh, and I really wanted to make work like that when I was in college. The problem was that my film school was no longer teaching uh, how to shoot on film on actual celluloid and, and instead was switching over to digital video, which was admittedly a lot uh, more cheaper, more contemporary, more convenient. Uh, but it posed a problem for me and the kind of work that I wanted to make because you can't, you know, scratch or paint on digital video like Stan Brackage would. But I figured um, if Brackage started scratching and painting on celluloid as a way to kind of deal directly with the medium, uh, if I wanted to kind of take the same approach, at least conceptually, kind of figure out, kind of work directly um, with, with the medium of digital video, I figured that meant I should start um, figuring out how to hack uh, binary code, right? Because beneath all digital files, whether they're video, audio, images, even software, We've got machine code at, at the kind of core, um, binary code being one way of sort of representing that machine code. Um, and I found some tools that developers would use to sort of fix bugs and executables. I gave you access to, to this um, machine code, this binary code, and started hacking, um, sort of digitally scratching my, my videos. Uh, and to my surprise, uh, aesthetically, it looked a lot like uh, Brackage's uh, films, which was exciting, uh, even though technically it was a different process, uh, though conceptually the same. I started calling these um, binary videos at the time, but once I started sharing them on the internet with other folks, uh, I realized that there was a community uh, of which Antonio is also part, uh, known as, as Glitchart. So I started calling this uh, Glitchart. Uh, and sharing these, these videos on the internet. Um, but what I got pretty quickly, what I got more excited than, more, more, more interesting to me than the aesthetic um, and, uh, and the sort of videos that I was making was the, was the process of making these videos. One of the things about making work this way, um, right, rather than using like digital video editing tools like Premiere or Final Cut or things like this, making videos in this sort of unconventional way um, is that you start to, start to hit certain walls and run into certain obstacles and the politics of sort of our digital tools, uh, issues like the differences between open source software and proprietary software start to kind of really present themselves. Um, and so I thought, started to get into, into sort of, I wanted to share these discoveries, these realizations with, with, with folks. And, and so I started making work that shared the process of making glitch art more so than the result 
of GlitchArt itself. So this is an example of, of one of those projects called the Glitch Codec Tutorial, um, where I took my, my desktop, uh, my sort of digital studio, my, my computer, um, and created an, an ISO, an image of that, of that desktop uh, on a DVD and later on a USB stick so that others could sort of boot into my, my operating system and then follow a series of video tutorials where I explain how to make the videos that I was making, but also discuss some of these politics and realizations that, that sort of arise when, when working in this way, when sort of misusing the tools and, and using computers, not necessarily in the ways that they were designed to be used. Um, Another example of, of that is, uh, is this project, um, Thoughts on GlitchArt. This is a web-based hypermedia essay, similar to the, the, the work I did for the ODI. So it's a website, um, an interactive website. Uh, and this case was both a, a space for creating GlitchArt, but also discussing some of those ideas, some of those politics uh, that I was referencing. This is the same sort of perspective, ethic, series of questions that I brought into my work as a, as a curator and organizer as I would put, put sort of events around glitch art um, together. Um, in those early years of participating in this community, uh, glitch art, both as an artist and as an educator and as an organizer, got me asking, like I mentioned, a lot of, a lot of questions about life in the digital age. It started with this question of like, what's the nature of the digital medium, this kind of Stan Brackage type question, um, which then, you know, raise questions of like, well, how does this work? You know, how can I start scratching this stuff? And once I started realizing how things worked, I started asking why do they work this way and looking into the histories of the development of, of software and different technologies and the different ideas that, that sort of led to those, to, to those different technologies. And then the sort of making realizations about certain biases that are embedded in those technologies. And as digital technologies sort of find their way into every other aspect of our lives, realizing the different ways that those biases are then consciously or not sort of perpetuated throughout our society. Um, so not just, again, thinking about how, how things work, but why they work this way and also who they work this way for. So thinking about um, control in the digital age and sort of the new power dynamics um, at play in, in, in digital systems. Um, I like to think of, I think a lot of, about how our digital tools are not only tools, but they're also environments. We don't just use the internet. We like live on the internet and they affect us in this way. Uh, and I think it's important to ask similar questions that we would about environments and spaces um, and apply those to, to these technologies. Um, so this line of questioning um, has led me to address an array of different themes uh, throughout uh, my work that Antonio sort of alluded to before, like uh, consumer tech culture and plans obsolescence and user agency. These are some of the themes that I tackle in this video essay called um, Apple Computers. Um, other themes that show up a lot in my work are sort of participatory culture uh, and algorithmic culture. This is a collaborative piece I made with another artist, Anna Russet, called Current Tube. Um, it's also the, and the name, but also the URL, current.tube. Fortunately, it's no longer working because YouTube revoked my um, API key. Uh, but this this video was about, this, sorry, this website, this internet art piece was about YouTube's algorithm. So YouTube, um, I don't know if folks are aware, but some, somewhere around 500 hours of video are uploaded to YouTube every minute. Um, but most of that content goes unwatched. 
Um, and I used to say that uploading a video to YouTube was like putting a message in a bottle, throwing it in an ocean and hoping that it washed up on somebody's shore. Um, and that's because most of that stuff gets buried by the algorithm, the algorithm, which has um, a very specific directive of keeping you on the platform for as long as possible at all costs. Uh, and there are some costs that algorithm has had all sorts of unfortunate side effects um, that have affected different communities and society in all sorts of problematic ways. And so this was our attempt to sort of undermine that algorithm. The way that it worked is you'd land on this page and as soon as somebody uploads a video to YouTube, a bottle would fall into this ocean and you can click it and you could watch that video. Um, and so you'd be getting this kind of raw stream rather than the kind of algorithmically curated feed. Uh, some other themes that show up a lot of my work um, over the years is intellectual property, copyright, and sort of the nature of creativity in the in the digital age. Um, more recently, a lot of that has me experimenting with um, AI. Uh, my my brother Andy Andrew Breeze uh, is on the on the call, so I thought I'd include this this example today. This is a piece called the Coldplay Song Generator. My brother and I got into an argument some years back, many years back, about Coldplay, um, the band, which uh, he's a fan of, and I was less a fan of, and I was arguing that they're somewhat uh, formulaic. Uh, and to prove my point, I deduced what I assumed their formula to be into an algorithm. Um, this The piece of software is essentially just a play button. Every time you click play, it generates a, a new song in the style of, of Coldplay, sort of a MIDI piano track. I'll let you ask my brother, uh, who won that argument? Um, but the theme, you know, that that I'm that that maybe I've been most sort of focused on in recent years, and one that I've been tackling for a long time, uh, is the issue of uh, privacy, uh, government, and corporate surveillance. Then uh, this sort of new paradigm we're in now that I mentioned in the intro: surveillance uh, capitalism. So this is something I've been tackling for um, a while. <laughs> Just a in the chat. Uh, this is something I've been working on for, for so this, this project, this was 2011. Um, and in those days, the issue of privacy and surveillance was something that folks, um, I mean, that some of us were becoming aware of, but that the general public didn't quite realize. Uh, people generally kind of felt like Google and Facebook and these things were just free um, and they didn't quite think about how they made money. And so a lot of my work then was focused on just getting people to realize what the exchange was, uh, the exchange that was that was going on. Uh, so this was a piece called The Charge for Privacy. It was a cell phone charging station. It's actually, um, it was shown in the UK once before at a gallery called um, Furtherfield, if folks are familiar with that, uh, in London. Uh, but it was first uh, made for um, Miami Art Basel, a couple galleries there. Uh, folks are constantly sort of walking around from gallery to gallery during uh, Art Basel in Miami. And so we thought a charging station, this was a collaborative piece with my uh, with my cousin, Paul, uh, who I work with a lot, and a couple of our friends, Raymond Branger and Joselle Galiz. Um, and so we started talking about making some sort of cell phone charging station, something that uh, would, you know, that folks would use, be drawn to for practical purposes, but that we could also use to make a point. So we decided that this charging station would serve, would function as a metaphor for the, for the, our relationship to, to these, to these, new surveillance capitalist tools. Uh, and so the charging station has terms and conditions engraved around the box, which we took word for word from Facebook. We just swapped the word Facebook for ours. And what the terms and conditions say uh, is that we have the right to do whatever we want with all of the photos on your phone. 
The reason it says that is because as soon as you plug your phone in, a screen on the other side would say phone detected, uh, charging your phone, downloading all of your photos, projecting your photos in, in the gallery, which is what the um, this person on the right is sort of looking at. On the other side of, uh, of the wall is a projection sort of cycling through all the photos that are automatically downloaded from every phone that, um, that use the charging station. Um, again, trying to, you know, shine light on this new relationship, on this new sort of exchange of data for, for services. Um, this is something that, um, again, that I kept sort of tackling uh, in other projects over the years. This is 2014, a project called How To Slash Wildly Facebook, where I wrote uh, a series of scripts of code that, that people could inject in their browsers to sort of modify Facebook um, and to sort of um, initially to download all of your content and then to delete or remove your content, at least from the surface of Facebook, along with a sort of video essay that I put together explaining not only how to do this, but why you might want to do this or explain some of Facebook's uh, practices and in particular a lot of the sorts of experiments and sort of more sneaky ways that they were sort of starting to to sort of implement or develop what they what they called what they call advertising these days. Um, and uh, this is another piece like like how they watch you. Um, a lot of a lot of the the work in the space I've been doing is sort of aimed at also just helping people see what is otherwise invisible. Um, I think these days folks are starting to understand a little bit this exchange. So when I first started, like around the time that I made the charge for privacy piece, I would ask my students, um, like on the first day of class, how do Facebook and Google make money? And most of them would sort of like stare at me blankly, like they've never considered this, like how, how does Google make money? How does Facebook make money? Um, we don't pay them. Uh, nowadays, when I ask that question, people have a, a better understanding. They'll say something like, you know, they, they, they collect our data or they sell our data. Um, uh, which is great. Um, I think it's, you know, I think just it's, it's encouraging to see that just as in general, that the, the public sort of better understands what's going on. Um, but when I press them on it, you know, I start to realize exactly what that means, what kind of data, how is it monetized and, and what's, you know, what are the implications? What's that? What are the risks here? Really? That's where things get a little hazier. So a lot of the, the work I've been doing more recently is helping us sort of see that data and understand those implications. Um, so this is a project I did with another collaborator, Brandon Dorsey, um, called the Wi-Fi Data Safari. This is sort of an artware, software art project that actually lets you see and explore the wireless data that's around you, uh, sort of in, in your vicinity. Um, so data that's just sort of being like, sort of spewed out of all, the, all of our phones and devices and routers um, just all around us. And what we do is we would take a, a group of, of participants on a kind of internet walking tour uh, through, through a city. Um, we talk about the what that wireless data is, um, how it's meant to be used, but how it's also exploited by hackers and marketing agencies uh, and the various different sorts of pieces of information that you can deduce about the individuals around you from this data. And then also how to, how to protect yourself from that sort of um, exploitation, um, which brings me to um, the piece for the ODI, how they watch you. Um, which is similar in this way that it's, it aims to make visible um, the invisible a little bit. Uh, in this case, specifically tackling the issue of uh, browser fingerprinting, which is one uh, sort of um, 
prevalent technique these days for tracking people on the uh, on the internet. I think a lot of us are probably aware of or have heard of cookies. Cookies is one way to do this, but it's no longer the most effective way. Uh, and so as we've installed tracker blockers and cookie blockers to prevent that sort of tracking, the trackers have evolved their techniques to circumvent that. And browser fingerprinting is sort of one, uh, one of one of these, one of the ways that they do this. Um, and the, this this fingerprint is really a metaphor. Um, at the bottom of this video, it's hard to see, but there's a there's an ID number, a really long ID number. That's what an, a browser fingerprint actually is. It's a uniquely identifiable ID that's assigned to you. The way that that ID is created is sort of by pulling different bits of information, different uh, bits of data from your computer, from your browser, from your device. And so this essay sort of explains quite literally what that data is. And that's what sort of gets visualized in this, um, in this sort of fingerprint. These are the different bits of data. So when you, when you go through the essay yourself on your computer, the data that you see is, is your personal data, is the, is the literal data that's used to create your fingerprint. Um, and as I kind of walk through the, the different pieces of data that make up this fingerprint, um, and I not only talk about how this works, but also, like I mentioned earlier, what, what the implications are. So what, what's really at stake? Because um, these days, when I, when I talk about this stuff, one of the responses I oftentimes get is like, sure, I get it. They've got my data. They're selling my data, but I don't really care. And when I hear people say that, what I think is not so much that, or what I hear is not that they don't care that their data is being recorded, analyzed, collected, sold, but rather that they don't fully understand the implications of what that means. So that's part of what I try to sort of focus on and explain uh, in, the, in the piece. Um, 7.30, I think I'm, I'm gonna stop talking there, uh, or 7.30 here anyways in Chicago. Uh, if we wanna switch over to, to Q&A time, Antonio. I'll just give me this myself. <laughs> yeah, brilliant. Thank you so much, Nick, for sharing like you know, a lot of your work and um, even just touching on um, what how they watch you is like. For, so for those who um, haven't yet seen it, of course, after after this, um, please do go and experience the work. It's quite a journey, really. Um, through all the things that Nick's talked about, like about the revelation. I say revelation, but even just like the education of what is be what is on the internet and what is um, being recorded, and so yeah, of course, if there are, um, are any questions in the chat, please do um, ask. But I guess um, for now, I, I have I have a couple of um, questions. So really, um, it like so you talk in the, in the artwork, um, and I don't want to give too much away. <laughs> But um, you talk about how one of the ways that um, advertisers are, I guess, like using technology to track is by something that I say is relatively new, like in terms of the life of the internet, it's fairly new, but like the HTML5 canvas um, technology, which you know, has its uses. I'm not much of a developer, so I'm sure you can tell us more about how it can be used, but um, how it's being used to basically track you. And yeah, so, you know, and, and the solutions to some of these tracking, as you mentioned, is um, cookies, like you might have, you know, the, the whole thing that the EU law about cookie um, having to accept, um, press accept on every single page that we visit these days, like that is one way to tackle it. But do you see that, what is going to be, I guess, the end game? Is it, it, what's the solution? Is it going to be basically that we either have to strip back our experience on the internet, disable cookies, disable JavaScript, 
or is the solution or is a potential solution that a, a technological one could it be like a new technology that every browser implements that suddenly prevents tracking like what where do you see there being any sort of solution yeah um well so i don't i don't know if that's a setup for me to share this link or not but i have, <laughs> I have a very long answer to that question <laughs> um here um so at the the project so I think when you finish the essay, which is at howthey.watch slash you, um, it'll redirect you to this URL, which is howthey.watch slash us, how they watch us, which is which is a very long answer to the to the question, what do we, yeah, so what do we do about it? <laughs> which is a question I oftentimes get when I when I share work like this, that I the question that I've been getting since the beginning. And so I've realized I need a, you know, I need to I've needed to have a real sort of clear and solid answer to that, to that question. So that's what this the URL is. Um, the way that I have that link set up is, so there's kind of three links there and there's the, the first two, I mean, the last one is sort of references and resources. So it's just the, the reference also sources for all the claims that I make in, in the essay, because some of them are hard to believe, but very much real. Um, but the first two links um, are what I call like long-term solutions and then like short-term solutions. So the short-term solutions kind of focus on they're sort of more immediate personal solutions, like the kind that you were talking about, like adding cookie blockers on your on your computer, which is, I realize what a lot of people are asking when they ask me, what can I do about it? It's like, well, how can I at least protect myself, my, my, my data? And so I go through a whole bunch of, you know, different ways to do that, different tools, um, uh, things like VPNs, alternatives to surveillance capitalist platforms and things like this. But one of the things that I stress is that these aren't, that these are short-term solutions um, that as long as we have, as long as this business model of surveillance capitalism remains like the, the prevailing sort of paradigm for, for our digital tools, tracking is not gonna stop. And every time we figure out some way to, to sort of um, prevent that tracking, um, the, you know, those that make money from this sort of practices find some way around it and do something else. So it's sort of like a cat and mouse game. So while there are a lot of things that you can do immediately to sort of protect your, your data, and I linked to a bunch of those in that, in that, on that list, um, you have to remember that it's not, this isn't going to solve, solve the problem in the long run. So I also have a list of long-term solutions in terms of just more kind of coming from the perspective of, um, maybe like sort of activists, just in terms of like what you can do in terms of staying informed and sort of discussing these issues and participating in different organizations that are working to address this, um, these issues. But um, one, one, of the, one of the things, or I think really like what we need is just a different business model. Um, I think like that cat and mouse game I was talking about is never gonna end and it's gonna continue um, as long as surveillance capitalism is like, uh, the way that we fund uh, these tools. Um, I have a list of alternative, a small kind of list of alternative business models. Cause also when I talk about this stuff, one of the, one of the responses I get is like, sure, but you know, this is like, there isn't a better model, you know, nobody wants to pay for Facebook. So they're not going to pay for it. Then this is the, the only way that we can do it. And I don't know. I think that, you know, I think that's just a lack of imagination. Uh, when I, when I hear that, um, so I have, uh, yeah, there's a, there's a list of some examples, um, other ways of thinking about this also on that, mm. on that URL. Yeah, cool. And definitely check out that link. Well, you know, do the whole essay and then check out. Yeah. <laughs> and yeah, like it's, it's kind of, um, 
and well, I say annoying and sad that like you know the responsibility is being put on us, the, the viewers, the users of the internet, to uphold our own rights. You know, because I think maybe I'm misquoting or I think it's on there, but like once the rights that you have currently are lost, it's really hard to get them back. So it's it's a bit, basically a fight to keep the rights that we have. And um, but yeah, it's it, it should be it shouldn't be that we have to. Uh, do that and especially you know i'm sure everyone when they are presented with the uh, accept cookies or deny cookies link we probably don't go through and check out you know which ones you want but i, I have on a few occasions gone through and seen what actual trackers there are and the list is huge and so yeah the surveillance capitalism model um you know sure it might just be a page showing animated jifes or whatever but it's there's a lot of tracking going on there, and that's the default. And that really, um, I guess you've already answered my um, the, the next question I had, which was like basically, what's the end game for advertisers? <laughs> because you know, like there's there's more and more. Um, like I remember being on the internet and having pop-ups being the worst thing that we experienced, <laughs> um, but now it just keeps. Yeah, they're getting more and more in in our in our faces, or like in more subversive ways, and. Yeah, is is there going to be like do 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 you think there's going to be any sort of future where advertisers completely have complete control over the internet, or am I just thinking too dystopian? <laughs> I mean, oh, I hope. I mean, I I can see different different ways forward. There's definitely like a dystopian, you know, direction and a, and a more utopian direction. Um, the well, first of all, I want to emphasize something that you that you said about, and we've talked we've talked about this before. The the issue of like the onus shouldn't be on us. Um, it's you know it's the the crime is being committed uh, on these on the side of the platforms, and I think the onus is on them to sort of change the practices and like make money in an ethical way and stop making money in an unethical way. You know, just because this stuff is legal currently because it's new, doesn't necessarily mean it's like right or that it should be legal uh these sort of practices um and i think that was an issue with a lot of like the earlier work that i was doing like the charge for privacy is that i started to realize that the way that people the the message that was being sent was like you should not be using facebook you should not be using which you know which is true maybe we shouldn't um but it puts the onus on the wrong side of this you know equation um so yeah thanks for mentioning that but in terms of the future um the yeah i guess you know there's one dystopian future so one of the things that i that i discuss in the, in the essay, as I attempt to help people understand again, what the implications of this tracking are. So answering the question for those that say, sure, my data is being tracked, but so what? Um, is that these ads, like advertising, like we need a better word for what this is now because it's like beyond advertising. Like what Facebook and these platforms offer their clients, their customers, isn't ad space. It's our attention and our behavior. Like they, they provide tools by which other interested parties can manipulate our behavior. Oftentimes those are people that are selling us stuff and the behavior they want to incite, you know, trigger is like, they want us to buy the things that they're selling. Um, but it's also just the way that they physically move us around. Um, like, uh, I don't know if, if anyone ever played Pokemon Go, but you know, one of the questions like, like we should always ask this about any app that you download for free is how do they make money? Pokemon Go, um, if we ask how do they make money? Um, they, what they sell, they, one of the things that they would sell to their customers, the real customers, right? Not the users of the game, the people that were paying were these things called lure modules, um, where essentially it's like, if you ran a store, you can, you can pay Pokemon go to put some rare Pokemon inside of your store. 
Um, uh, and the idea was that then, you know, people playing Pokemon Go and as they were, you know, to try to find these rare Pokemon, which would sort of navigate the physical world in and then, you know, find their way into some convenience store or whatever, some McDonald's. Um, and, and then, you know, they find the Pokemon there. And, and so this is, again, just to emphasize that, like, what was being sold was your behavior. They wanted to get people to physically move into a store um, and that's what they purchased and that's what they, what they got um, on, on, and on online, when we see ads showing up on sites, you know, like um, platforms like Facebook and Instagram, et cetera. The other thing that we have to realize is, is part of the targeting is not just that like, they know what the kinds of stuff that we're into and what we want to buy, but they know when we're most susceptible to buying that thing. Um, they know where, like when and where, where to place that in, in front of us and sort of optimize the chances that we, that we, that we buy that. This is where, where AI, artificial intelligence comes into play. I talk a little bit about this also in the essay where we can, one of the things AI is really good at is predicting. Um, and that word means a lot of things in, in machine learning and artificial intelligence. Um, but in this case, in the context of advertising is that they can predict you know, who, when, and who is interested in buying a certain kind of thing. Um, and yeah, and, and placing that in front of you. So I could see a future of advertising where that predictive manipulative sort of potential is even, is even worse. Um, we've, I mean, we're already starting to see how other interested parties like political groups um, have used these platforms to, to manipulate other behavior, political behavior. Um, and I can see this becoming, you know, a sort of, incredibly dystopian mind control machine. But on the utopian side, one of the things that I mentioned is, um, is that is that there are, even on the front of advertising, there are, there are other ways to advertise stuff on the internet and to sort of, you know, say you run a publication, you know, online, you don't need to use these trackers. You don't need to be a part of one of these ad networks to make money. You can run your own advertising, your own ad networks. You can form relationships with, with uh, with partners that you you know with other businesses that that are in, in in alignment with your values that you think your readers might be interested in and you can place those ads yourself on your on your site. There's an article I linked to um, on the on the uh, that resource. I'll just link to it directly here um, about a Dutch uh, public broadcaster uh, that did that and that actually ended up making more money when they went that route than when they were using these. Um, sort of privacy compromising ad networks. So there, you know, there's also clearly like a, a utopian way forward. We just all have to like agree to go in that direction. Brilliant. That, yeah, thank That's a very good um, explanation. And, you know, I asked that question, I guess, not to kind of like scare people into thinking, oh no, the internet's going to um, take over everything, but more just, you know, I think your work also does really good to educate. Again, not to scare techs, but I think it does well to just like, show people exactly what is happening and to give them I guess the power to at least be more knowledgeable and that's what I really like, like about the work it doesn't kind of opt for scare tactics and yeah hopefully you know whilst I really love the work in one way I hope it in in a way like becomes obsolete because tracking goes away and you know all of this becomes a historical thing where it's like in the past we had tracking and now we don't so you know i, I hope that in the end that's the uh, that's what happens like and 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 you know like to to yeah to keep on the positive angle a little bit uh, that has happened with a lot of my work um it's become obsolete uh like the the charge for privacy no longer works because apple 
you know, Apple, because they're maybe a company that doesn't rely as much on surveillance capitalism, they've, they've like updated the way that their software works to be much more privacy focused. And so that, that project, just like the, the software I wrote, just no longer works. I can't just like pull people's photos automatically when they plug into a charging station, which used to be a thing, but is no longer possible. So I'm glad that I can no longer show that piece. <laughs> but yeah, and, uh, and even so, like, I hope it still serves as an example of like missteps, because even as I said in the curatorial statement, you know, we started with move fast and break things and we've broken things. So now that we're in, we're in kind of patch mode where we're, we're fixing bugs and, you know, I hope that your work is a part of that process really in, in fixing those bugs, making people more aware of it. And so that it's, um, you know, on a, on a institutional, on a corporate level, we begin to fix well they begin to fix things for us so um i think we shall have to end there because i know you know it's early for you and you you have other things to do but um i'd just like to say again thank you so very much for um all the insight into your work and you know and thanks to everyone who's joined us today um i don't know if you have any closing remarks nick that you want to say um check out the the piece um and like i said for you know i've, I've tried my best to answer a lot of common questions in that in that other link uh so folks because I, I saw there's there's still some questions showing up in the in the chat what kind of what kind of data zoom collecting and stuff so like i mentioned there there are alternatives and and more details about that kind of stuff in the resources i put together at the end of the site cool yeah so um please do go check out the work, go to culture.odi and you can learn more about the rules of engagement exhibition and visit Nick Breeze's website, nickbreeze.com to just learn all about him. And yeah, so we will, there's not going to be another talk now until 18th of June when we'll be joined by AM Doc, who will be presenting their new piece made for the um, rules of engagement exhibition. So yeah, I think, on that note, I'll just say thank you to all again. Thank you to Nick. Thank you to ODI for hosting. Thanks to Hannah Redler, who acted as producer on the exhibition. And yeah, have everyone a good day. And for Nick, hey, have a good morning. Have a good start to your day. Okay. Yeah, thanks. Yeah, thanks everybody for coming out. Uh, all right, take care. I'm just going to wait. Yeah. <laughs> You've been listening to a Friday lunchtime lecture brought to you by the Open Data Institute.